Okay, show of hands. How many think that the landowner is a little bit unfair here? What's going on with the distribution of those wages? What do you think? Does that strike you as a little strange, kind of a little bit unfair? I think a lot of people feel that way when they hear this this parable. Uh, and uh, this ties into our first reading in the Old Testament from Isaiah. God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. So God looks at things a little differently than us. Okay, so this parable is supposed to make us feel like, hey, wait a second, something's not quite right about this here, you know? It's supposed to do that, right? It's supposed to kind of shock us to show us that God thinks differently. He operates differently than how we do. I think the key to understanding the parable is right at the end, when the landowner says to the complaining uh, laborer who labored all day, he says to him, uh, is this not mine to give as I wish? To give is the word, not to pay. He doesn't use the word pay, he uses the word give. So we see that those people that came in later on in the day, at 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock, their wage was essentially a gift. This was a generosity of the landowner. And it's a symbol or a, you know, a parable of God's mercy towards us. And uh, most commentators have understood this parable as dealing with the relationship actually between the Jewish people in Israel, historically, and the Gentiles. So the Jewish people are those who came in at, the, at 6 o'clock in the morning. They're the people that served God hundreds if not thousands of years before the Gentiles came in. But then the Gentiles come right in, hey, and they get to, at the end of the day, and they get the same reward that the Jewish people do. The Old Testament people do. So that's kind of maybe the main meaning of this parable. But it's also traditionally been applied to individual believers as well. You have some believers who serve God their whole life from their childhood up, and uh, they never depart from the service of God, and they're faithful throughout the entire length of their life. And what's their reward? Eternal life. And then you have people who maybe only begin to serve God in their 20s or in their 30s or in their 40s or in their 50s or maybe even their 60s or 70s or whatever. And what's their reward? Eternal life. Same thing. So that's one of the, the main applications that we can apply this parable to our individual lives. And uh, moreover, we've got even more dramatic instances of someone just skidding into heaven at 5 o'clock. You've got people who do the, the deathbed conversion thing. Okay, that's possible too. All right, uh, it's not something you want to bank on, though. All right, and again, we go back to that first reading from Isaiah. It says, "Now is the time of salvation. Repent now." And so you don't want to wait. I remember once uh, when I was a teacher, I had a, a student of mine who was a Baptist. I grew up in a Baptist family, and he says, well, you know, my mom wants me to give my life to Jesus right now, but you know, I don't know, uh, it doesn't sound like a lot of fun. I'm having fun right now, and, uh, you know, i got a lot of time. I'll convert on my deathbed. And uh, very, very unadvisedly, don't, don't ever have that attitude, because we don't know what our end will be like. It's not really in our control. It's not like it's totally a decision. Of course, whenever we convert, it's going to be a free choice. But at the same time, it's a result of God's grace. And as Isaiah says, 
Now you hear my voice. Now is the time to convert. Do it now. And then serve God from here on out. So we, we can't uh, bank on that, that uh, death, that conversion. Nonetheless, it does happen in God's mercy. Some people are saved on their, their deathbed. In fact, we had the dramatic story a few weeks ago. You remember the uh, homily I gave about hoping for the salvation of others and praying for the salvation of family members who might be falling away from the Catholic faith. And I gave the story of uh, from the life of St. John Vianney. There was a, a penitent, a woman that came to him and was very distraught. She was a widow, and uh, her husband had committed suicide, and she was really despairing of his salvation. And by the Holy Spirit, it was revealed to St. John Vianney that this man made an act of perfect contrition in between the jumping off of the bridge and the drowning in the water, so and so was actually saved. Um, so it is possible, but again, it's not something you, you, you kind of bank on, all right? Um, but speaking of, of salvation, you know, on the deathbed and towards the end of our life, it's important to talk about the last sacraments and the importance of receiving the last sacraments and preparing for our death. We see in uh, our second reading from St. Paul, he's, he's looking forward to his death. Okay, He's in prison. He knows he's going to be executed at some point, or he very well could be executed. And so he's, he's actually saying, I look forward to heaven. Right, so he's meditating upon heaven, and that's actually giving him encouragement. He says, I'd rather go to heaven than actually be here right now. And so St. Paul is actually looking forward to his death. Now that's kind of rare. Usually very holy people have that kind of attitude. Your average Joe like me or like you, maybe we, you know, the thought of our death is a little bit unnerving, and maybe not something that we look forward to. But nonetheless, it's something that we should think about and prepare for. Very important. When I was uh, training to be a priest, I did this 11-week program at Strong Memorial Hospital. And I was kind of like an apprentice chaplain. I was just a layman at the time, it was before I was ordained. And I was just, I would wear lay clothes and go into the rooms and minister to the people as much as I possibly could. You should just pray with them. And uh, we had a little badge that said chaplain on it. And we were advised by the other chaplains to, to do this technique whereby you actually flipped your tag over on the initial entrance into the room so they didn't know who you were. And then you kind of, little by little, they started to figure out, oh, you're the chaplain. Because, believe it or not, people are extremely anxious in those situations. And the sight of a chaplain, they think to themselves, oh, does that mean I'm going to die? Does this mean I'm going to die? Okay, the chaplain is like Dr. Death coming in and, and scaring them. Okay, and uh, I have to say, this is this is not the Catholic way. Okay, this is not the Catholic way. We shouldn't be so unnerved about the thought of our own death that we don't prepare adequately for it. We should pray for our loved ones who have passed on. We should attend funerals. We should uh, spend some time in cemeteries, praying for the people in the cemeteries, visiting our loved ones in cemeteries, looking forward to the future of our, of our own uh, eventual death. And preparing for it, and if we do that, it'll be less nerve-wracking when it begins to approach. Now, in light of that, I, I think what I, I find sometimes um, is uh, certain family members will actually conceal from the person who's dying the fact that they're dying. You know, the doctor gave them a report and they actually won't tell them. Because, again, they're afraid of scaring the person. You definitely don't want to do that. If the doctor tells you that a family member has really only got a certain amount of time left to live, you really want to, it's very important to inform them of that so that they can prepare adequately ahead of time. Uh, now, what's beautiful about uh, the community here in Lyons and in 
applied in Savannah is we're small, and so the communication chain is pretty is pretty efficient. So in my experience as a priest ministering to people uh, on their deathbeds in this area, it's been very, very positive. Family members communicate. We, we, they take care of each other. There's oftentimes been very adequate preparation for death. It's a very beautiful thing. In larger parishes, that's not always the case. Um, the experience of many priests is that you know they're on call for a day or two. They've got a vapor or what have you. Uh, they're called into the hospital at 2 o'clock in the morning, and the person who's dying has got literally about an hour left. And they've been unconscious for the previous three or four or five days or a week or two weeks or whatever. And the family members are calling the priest in right at the last moment. Now, that's good. You want to do that. It's, it's good to do that. But even, it's not ideal. The ideal thing is to call the priest in well before any the person goes unconscious. Okay, well, well before. Even weeks before. Doesn't, it's no harm. Again, the people sometimes are afraid if they call the priest in too early, it's going to make this, uh, you know, this beloved family member too nervous or what have you. But uh, it's really not a proper approach to the whole situation. Call the priest in nice and early. So we talk about the last rites. We're talking about the last sacraments. And there's three last sacraments. They are confession, uh, anointing of the sick, and Holy Communion. Holy Communion in the context of, you know, your final passing is referred to as viaticum. It's a very neat word. It's a Latin word. It means food for the journey. So here we are. We're about to take this very profound journey, the most profound journey of our existence to date. And here we have the most important thing to be given to us that's going to give us strength to be able to do that journey. That is the Eucharist. But the first is reconciliation, and then the second is anointing of the sick. Now, if the person's unconscious, it's still, it's good, you know, you call the priest in, and the priest will, the person can't make a confession, but uh, absolution is given, okay? And the absolution that's given at that time can still have value and importance in one or two situations. Sometimes the person is completely unconscious. They don't have the use of their faculties at all. And so what happens is the grace of absolution intersects with the state of their mind and their heart just before they lost consciousness. Okay, so it's still a helpful thing. Okay, it's still helpful. The other issue is that oftentimes people only appear to be unconscious. You never know. There's, they still could have some consciousness left, even though they don't appear to be. Okay. So oftentimes you'll see the priest come in and he'll speak to the person as if the person can hear him. Maybe lead him in an act, him or her in an act of contrition, and then give him absolution. Okay. That's in case the person really still is actually semi-aware of what's happening. And many, many priests can tell you, it's very interesting, um, the person's been unconscious for three days, no response. And the priest comes in and suddenly the person's kind of like twitching their eyes or moving. Something like that. Like they know that the priest has actually come in. Okay. Um, very common testimony. A priest will tell you that, that that happens. But in any event, the ideal situation is to call the priest in way ahead of time, before the person goes unconscious, so that they can celebrate the sacrament of reconciliation in, in its full manner. And also, the, the sacrament of the sick is a beautiful communal celebration as well, so that you can have the family together, and it can be a communal event as well and then Holy Communion. 
So my brothers and sisters, just to you know, remind us of, how, of the proper administration of the last sacraments, um, and to know that as much preparation that we do and we should do, we learn from our parable today uh, that God is merciful and there's always hope. And no matter how late in the day it is, by God's mercy, by not his pigment, by, by his gift, it's always possible to come home and to be saved and to go into the reward of eternal life.